Welcome to the North Star Unplugged podcast, brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions, and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter, which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you want to watch the interviews, go to YouTube and search for the North Star Unplugged channel. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of North Star Unplugged. I'm your host, Kristen Rainey, and I'm here today with Craig Kempt, who was described in a 2012 article in the Bozeman Daily Chronicle as a hulking athlete of a man and lifelong skier. That's for sure. Craig has been a highly successful ski racer, a 33-year alpine racing coach and director here in Bozeman and beyond, an ultimate Frisbee national champion, and an entrepreneur. In 2009, Craig experienced a traumatic skiing accident, resulting in amputation of his leg two years later. He's been rebuilding his life and lifestyle since then. Craig, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So um, let's start with, uh, I know people who are listening can't see you visually, but I can right now on Zoom, and I see that you have a bandage on your chin. Uh, how did you get that? Uh, I crashed on my bike. Along, so, along with other injuries. <laughs> what were what were the what were your injuries? Was this road biking or mountain biking? Mountain biking. I crashed, broke my collarbone, uh, partially separated my rotator cuff, and uh, you know had scrapes and cuts and all that good stuff. And when was this accident? Uh, a little over eight weeks ago. So I know that last weekend you climbed Whitetail Peak, which is 12,000 feet, uh, which is no small potatoes. So you must be feeling pretty well recovered by, by now. Uh, I don't feel actually too bad. I'm, I'm still a little uh, uh, stiff and uh, going upstairs, is, I can feel it my leg still, but other than that, I feel pretty good. So you're fairly familiar with the emergency room, it seems. Yes. Very. So I, I imagine that uh, I, have a, I have a lifetime pass there. <laughs> so this this most recent mountain biking accident this this summer here in Bozeman um, was sort of no big deal compared to what you've been through in the past. Um, can you share a little bit more about your 2009 skiing accident? How did it happen? Yeah, I was up at Big Sky. I was coaching my daughters. Uh, free ride team, uh, her group of like 11 or 12 kids, I think we had in our group and we were skiing some, uh, big train at big sky, dropping some, uh, cliffs and, uh, training for a competition. And I, I dropped a and then I, uh, I hit a rock when I landed and, uh, it slowly stopped my ski and I started to spin around backwards and I started backwards, twisting, tomahawking down, uh, steep slope and um 
one of the revolutions when I hit the ground, I think my ski stuck into the snow and I kept twisting and spinning and I felt the pressure at boot top and my leg blew up right there. Compound fracture, I had bone fragments that came out and my ski didn't come off and uh, my uh, foot spun around a time and a half. So what do the next few months look like right after the accident? Uh, um, I was in the hospital for a while. I had uh, reconstructive surgery. Um, and then I came home and I basically laid on my back for four months. I couldn't do anything uh, with my leg up. And then at four months time, I think I had my first bone graft surgery, which is a big surgery. They took bone out of my uh, tibial plateau and out of my hip and they mixed it with uh, infuse a stem cell a mixture uh, that's supposed to promote bone growth and they mixed that all together and they put it down my spiral fracture which is my tibia that had uh, almost a quarter inch gap in it that had to grow bone in order for my tibia to heal. So I had that uh, four months and then I went back home and I, uh, I spent another four months mostly on my back and then finally I was able to get up this time and uh, I'll start crutching around. Um, and then four months later I went back in. Uh, I had hardware taken out of some of my other fractures and uh, I had another bone graft at that point in time. Um, and then I was back on the same program, go home and try and heal. I, it was like a never ending pattern for the next almost three years of surgeries. So I kept having bone grafts. Uh, I kept not growing bone. And so at 18 months after my accident, uh, my doctor here in Bozeman deemed my uh, injury a non-union, which means the, there was no bone growth enough to uh, heal the, the fracture. So at that point, um, I left Bozeman and I went to the Stedman Clinic in Colorado in Vail. Uh, they're one of the top orthopedic surgeon places, surgery places in the country. Uh, they do uh, most of the U.S. ski team uh, surgeries and whatnot. So I felt really confident going there. Uh, when I, when I got there, uh, this was, uh, almost, we're talking probably 20 months after my injury, when I got an appointment, uh, I went down there and they, the doctor looked at my leg and he thought that, uh, he could do a surgery after looking at all my uh, bone scans and whatnot that would, uh, require taking all the hardware out. <clears throat> it's called a tibial renailing and it's a <clears throat> pretty invasive surgery where they <clears throat> take your hardware out and they drill down the middle of your uh, tibial, your bone marrow, uh, tibia, and they grind up all the bone with a drill and it forms a, a bone slurry of blood and bone. And then they pound this uh, this enormously big rod with a hammer down in there. It had five sides to it, kind of like a, almost like an Allen wrench, but, you know, kind of like that. And it went in. Um, 
And that was the surgery he proposed and the surgery that he ended up doing uh, on me. Uh, at that appointment, though, he, he looked at my leg and I had this enormous um, uh, knot that was growing at my big fracture site. And he was concerned about that as being infected bone. And so at that point in time, he thought that um, the surge, even if there was bone infection or if there's infection in there, that the surgery was going to solve all my issues. And uh, it was actually the first time in a long time that I kind of felt like I had some hope that I was going to, you know, my leg was going to heal. So we, we had that surgery. He went in and did the surgery. <clears throat> um, uh, I spent uh, some time down there uh, doing some rehabilitation, and then I came back to Montana. And then I had to go back down, uh, I think it was three months later, because I had some swelling and some irritation. And so I went down, and uh, that's when he uh, diagnosed me with bone infection. <clears throat> So at that point in time, um, uh, we were around two years into the accident, and uh, they had to go back in and take all that hardware out. And I had to go on. I had a pick line put in my arm, and I started going on intravenous antibiotics to try and uh, stop the bone infection. I then had uh, other complications. Um, I had an aneurysm in one of my arteries and my leg blew up and I had to have emergency surgery to have that tied off. Um, and uh, I ended up getting uh, blood poisoning from that surgery. And then I, uh, I got super sick. I almost died. All my organs shut down. I, my infectious disease doc said I was eight hours away from the point of no return that my blood would have gone too far and they wouldn't have been able to save me. So, I was in the hospital for a number of weeks after that, recovering. Um, um, let's see, at that point in time, uh, I was in limbo. I had an external fixator on my leg, which is an external support system that has uh, rods that are drilled right in through your skin into the bone, and they were on both sides of my fracture. And then I had this metal rod that, that went between the two and that gave me support. Um, I had had that on since the surgery before I went septic. And so it had been on for like three months longer than it was supposed to have been on. Um, right after I healed up well enough to come home from the hospital from sepsis, I, I started doing hyperbaric chamber treatments at the hospital where you lay in a, it's like a coffin um, it, and they pressurize you and then they fill that with 100% oxygen. Uh, and that was supposed to uh, promote gro bone growth as well. So I did 50 of those. And uh, I, I, I have uh, uh, claustrophobic issues and uh, it was very hard for me to do those. I had to be sedated every day to have them done. So uh, uh, I, I finally did all of those. I went back down to Colorado and, uh, I had the external fixator taken off and the doctor that, uh, swore that he was going to be able to save my leg told me that he was, uh, finished with me and that, uh, 
he couldn't, he wouldn't touch me again because of the bone infection and the sepsis that, uh, he didn't think my leg was savable at that point in time. So he recommended me to a doctor in Denver, uh, Dr. Hahn, who, uh, performed my amputation, um, at the end of uh, October in 2011. So this is two years after the accident. Yeah, it was almost three, two and almost two and three quarters of a year. Yeah. And you're a BK amputee. What does that mean? Below knee. So I have my knee joint. And does having uh, the knee joint increase the number of activities or mobility that you're able yes, to have? So absolutely. it's a big, a significant difference compared to an significant above difference. Significant. Okay. I was lucky. When actually, when I had my amputation, uh, uh, I had an infection right on, uh, at the amputation site, and they were worried that I, if I got bone infection, they were going to have to take my knee, uh, uh, you know, have surgery again and take the knee. So I was I was sweating bullets there for a couple weeks. So when you'd reached the point where the doctor said that was really the only option, was that a huge surprise at that point, or had this possibility this this scenario loomed in your mind for months before when you'd had surgery yes. over surgery like how long did you have to prepare mentally for this uh i i think probably you probably prepare for it subconsciously at some point i think i knew probably that uh it wasn't going well obviously it was going in the wrong direction and mm -hmm. uh but as an athlete and uh uh, just someone that had spent your whole, I mean, I was 48 when I had the accident. So, uh, you know, it was, I was stubborn to the fact that I, I couldn't fathom the fact that my leg couldn't heal. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, uh, when I finally made the mental decision that I, I was going to lose my leg, it was like a huge weight was lifted off me as far as this massive amount of stress and, uh, you know, hopelessness and depression. So at that point in time, I actually made a mental adjustment to where I started actually looking towards the future as being an amputee and what that picture looked like in my head for the first time, really. Uh, uh, before that, I was clinging and, uh, you know, just clinging to the fact that I was going to save my leg. And so... Yeah. And then 18 months after your amputation, you completed the Ridge Run, which is for those of you who are not listening, who are not in Bozeman, this is a 20 mile grueling trail run held every August here since 1985, except for this fall when we had, uh, we've had COVID obviously. Um, it's an event that Runner's World has named one of the top 31 trail races in the country uh, and, and mentioned it has the most raw exposure. Um, what inspired you to sign up for this event? Uh, for me, it was a, a statement to myself that I was uh, kind of back, you know, mm -hmm. that I wanted mm -hmm. uh, for myself uh, to show myself and to show the rest of the world that I, I, uh, I was back, basically, that it, I hadn't uh, succumbed <laughs> to... Uh, mm -hmm you know, a life of not doing anything, which I saw a lot of, uh, on my way back, uh, from other amputees and whatnot. 
I was determined not to let my injury stop me. Mm-hmm. It's pretty, it's an impressive race, uh, for anyone. Uh, it sounds very challenging. Um, so, and then how long after the amputation did it take you to get back on your skis? Um, I actually skied, uh, that, uh, I lost my leg in, uh, uh, the end of October, excuse me. And then, uh, I skied that spring, uh, with the setup. Uh, it wasn't, uh, anything spectacular, but I was actually able to make turns down the hill. So, uh, I didn't really officially start skiing in any, consistency until the following year what's the 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 typical adaptive ski gear setup for a bk amputee uh typically uh typically mm-hmm. in the past uh before recently it was uh you know you ski on one ski and you use the poles with that have skis on the tips mm-hmm. uh it's called uh three tracking and then what's your setup uh, my setup is uh, I ski normally with uh, two ski boots, two skis, and a prosthetic that goes into my ski boot. And so when, it comes up and wraps up all the way around my thigh. It's pretty mechanically uh, advanced. So anyone looking at you on the mountain actually has no idea that you have one leg? Not usually unless I fall and my leg falls off. <laughs> it's <laughs> happened a couple times. <laughs> So most of us listening have absolutely no idea what it's like and how challenging it must be to be able to ski just on one, uh, on one leg. Can you share a little bit more about how your body had to learn how to adapt and what were some of the challenges in terms of balance and pressure on your foot and, and, and learning how to navigate? Um, uh, it actually, for me, skiing uh, came easier for me skiing than walking getting back to walking um i my prosthetist said that i I was blessed with incredible proprioception and feel for where my foot is you know my prosthetic foot i'm able to uh just pretend i basically started skiing i just pretended my leg was still there and uh you know it it went pretty quickly Uh, i once I got going, it advanced relatively quickly. And just to make all of us jealous, how many pairs of skis do you have in your garage right now? <laughs> More than I care to share. <laughs> <laughs> so a few years after your amputation, you, you qualified for the 2014 Sochi, Sochi Olympics as a Paralympian for giant slalom ski racing. Um, tell us more about that journey. Um. Uh, it was, uh, it was interesting in that, um, you know, having been a ski racer growing up and being Alpine ski racing coach for my career, I, I naturally, without really considering and thinking about it, I just thought that would be something that I could do, you know, to, to, you know, to be competitive again, cause I'm such a competitor and, uh, so I went, I went through the, uh, kind of the, uh, it's kind of a, I guess, uh, you, what would you call it when you go to, I went to a training camp, a, a Paralympic training camp. And, uh, it was kind of eye opening to me because I had no idea how everything worked and, and whatnot. And, uh, 
um, so by the time that I had, uh, you know, done some, some qualifying stuff, I'd realized that, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's all, it's all based on, uh, handicap time that you, you're given, you have a handicap coefficient. And so if you actually are the fastest one down the hill, that doesn't necessarily mean that you win, you have your handicap added on. And so it, it, skews the field the results and so uh i wasn't uh i wasn't that fired up about that and i was it was uh it was kind of it was there a lot of politics involved and whatnot and it was also extremely expensive uh to to you know to do the tours and uh the world cup tour and then to uh you know to actually do the olympics was a fairly expensive endeavor so I ended up shying away from that and going back to what I should have done from the start, which was pursue uh, my passion for free skiing, big mountain free skiing, which is what I've been doing ever since uh, when I'm not coaching. I want to come back to free skiing, but first question is when you were mentioning different handicaps of, of um, getting down the mountain with different amounts of time, is that based on whether you're a below knee amputee or above knee amputee or what, Correct. you know, okay. Correct. Yes. Uh, so as a interestingly enough as a as a below knee athlete skiing on two skis i had uh my handicap was higher than which meant that i had to go faster to have the same time as a similar bk that was three tracking so in or, in other words i could beat that person by 2 seconds but when you added added the handicaps he he would be ahead of me in the results and Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, you know, I, I just, it's like diving almost or gymnastics. It was, I almost felt like it was kind of, you know, was, not only was it just how fast you'd get down the hill, but you know, the, the whole handicap system was not what I was looking for. And, you know, prior to your accident, I know you had a, a, a number of huge accomplishments in skiing and you were four-time all-conference Montana State uh, Alpine team member. You were uh, also on the 1986 Ski Joring National Championship. Uh, that I was, was the as an, and you were the national champion, sorry, as one person, correct? Yes. So and my horse. And your and my horse. Tell us about ski joring. What is ski joring? Uh, ski drawing has actually blown up in the last 10 years, but uh, when I did it back in 1986, uh, it had been going on for quite a while. There had been a national championships every year in Red Lodge, I think, for a number of years before that. But it's uh, it's racing through a course, um, uh, being pulled by a horse. Uh, going there's uh, Typically, a course has a number of turns. Typically, there's a bend in the course that the horse has to navigate. And then there's jumps as well that you have to go over along the way. And so you, it's time, it's time. So it's like a rodeo that you have two goes. You have one go on Saturday and one go on Sunday. And then the, the lowest combined time to the two uh, is the winner. So you're and behind and you're holding actually, on, connect, you're connected to the horse with- A with rope. Okay. Yeah, you have a rope. So that's basically it. <laughs> I'm just trying to envision how it goes when the horse jumps and you jump, uh, how that. Oh, uh, the horse doesn't go off the jumps. Oh, just, just the just skier. You. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So there's actually a tour now. There's a ski drawing 
tour in the West. They, they have like 12 events. So does, when I was reading about ski drawing, because I didn't know what it was, I, I, I learned that you can, it can be a horse or a dog or a motor vehicle pulling you technically. And so I guess what I wonder is when you're competing for something like this, like for example, when you won the national championship, did it have to be a horse? Like, so you were competing against other people with horses? It was only horses. It was only uh, horses. Okay. Nationals, national championships is only horses. Um, any, any, any big competition is horse only. Okay. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. Have you, have you ever thought about getting back into ski drawing? Uh, listen, I had never done ski drawing in my life before that. Uh, I got invited to do it by this uh, cowboy in Red Lodge that heard I was a really good skier. So he called me and asked me to come over and uh, another buddy of mine came and he rode behind him as well. He ended up taking second, my buddy, Peter. And I, uh, literally like a half an hour before my first pull, I got behind the horse and went out and practiced out in the field <laughs> to try and get the hang of it. And then I uh, showed up and, and did the course and I had the fastest go both days. And, and then I won the long jump competition as well. So I swept the weekend. And I, back then I think I made like 3,300 bucks wow. and it was 1986. It was pretty good money for a, just out of college kid. And off the couch. I mean, off the I couch, know. ski drawing national champion. That's yeah. impressive. So you, you spent 33 years as an alpine ski racing coach and director, uh, including in, in Maine, in Sun Valley, Idaho, and then the majority of the time uh, back here in Bozeman, uh, coaching at Montana State, your alma mater, as well as the Bridger Ski Foundation and the Big Sky Ski Education Foundation, where you started their free skiing program in 2008. Um, so first, because I know you mentioned free skiing before, so tell us, uh, for those people who are not skiers, what is free skiing? Uh, uh, competitive big mountain free skiing is uh, uh, where uh, you, you have a venue and you have terrain up on the hill um, and they mark off boundaries on each side of the venue and the competitor is able to go up and explore and figure out their line. And then uh, you ski your line and you're judged based on a number of criteria, including like technique, uh, fluidity, um, line selection, aggression. Um, and I think there's one, uh, they, they, they used to have one for air, um, but they're not having that as much anymore as of a focus because people were starting to, you know, go too big. And there were lots of accidents, people getting hurt. Uh-huh. And, and that's basically it. And um, tell us what was the most rewarding part of ski coaching for you? Uh, my, uh, uh, my interaction with my athletes. I, I loved being uh, with my athletes. I, I, I'm a, I never kind of really grew up myself, so I always fit in better with the team. <laughs> So I just, uh, I had a passion for uh, being with young people and, and teaching them and watching them uh, progress. What was the difference between the great skiers and the champions? Was it willing to be on the borderline out of control and willing to risk injury to be fastest? Was it that they worked harder? Was it innate athletic ability? Was there an element of luck and everything lining up on race day in terms of conditions? combination of the above what are your thoughts 
Um, I think, uh, uh, the, the, obviously in every sport, the higher level you get in sport, the more mental it becomes, the more, uh, mentally tough you have to be. And it becomes, uh, you know, you have so much routine in your training where you're doing it over and over and over and over again, that you essentially, uh, you reach a point where when you go out of the starting gate, it's, it's all about having the right frame of mind mentally to be able to you know, race, you know, hundred percent race down the hill and not think about anything else, but sheer looking for speed the whole time. And, uh, the athletes that I coached over the years, the ones that, uh, always did the best were the ones that weren't typically the, you know, the greatest gifted athlete as far as technique goes, but were the ones that were, you know, that had had some of that, but were the the mentally strongest and the ones that f- could fight through everything and and still push hard. Were there certain routines that some of these athletes did before the race? Certain mental routines, or listening to music, or meditating, or how did they prepare in those, yes. you know, that half hour before the race, for example? So in training, we had uh, they'd have to go through their pre-race program in training every day. So they have a, a little routine they go through. I mean, you, if you watch the top level ski racers in the world, like for example, Michaela Schifrin, um, she's the top female U.S. ski racer, probably arguably the best female ski racer of all time when it's all said and done. Uh, her her routine is uh, is uh, it's like clockwork she she does basically the same thing you know race in and race out up at the start of the course and uh you know once you get you just it's 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 practice you need to practice your mental game and your pre-race program and have it down so when you get in that in the start gate you're able to perform optimally at your highest potential and for you how would you spend the 20 minutes before you would race throughout your career uh, I was, uh, 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 I did better when I had music. <laughs> I listened to music and that mm-hmm. would fire me out. Mm-hmm. That's what I did. I pretty much, uh, I, uh, I would go walk up and down the hill, get my legs fired up. I, I did a stretching routine. Uh, I did some explosive stuff to get my legs firing. And then, uh, I essentially just kind of tried to relax and take deep breaths and, try and focus in on just uh, going down the hill like water. During your racing and coaching career, was there any attention paid to diet and sleep for skiers? Uh, obviously not as much, uh, nothing on sleep. I mean, other than you're supposed to go home and get a good night's sleep, you know, uh, back in the day. Uh, diet, uh, you know, wasn't uh, – wasn't like it is now. I mean, we made such huge advances in uh, athletic performance and diet. I mean, obviously there was some of that back in the late seventies, early eighties when I was competing in ski racing, but uh, not like it is now. I mean, and I don't think there was, I mean, I look back on my, I was still living in Montana at home when I was ski racing and I look back at my family's diet and it was not a very conducive diet to performance by any stretch. Although I had lots of milk and meat and potatoes, I guess. 
Well, there, there, there's nothing healthy going in our bodies as far as green food. That and, how about, diet. and how about recovery in between races and or cross training and other types of activities? Well, I always did everything because I, uh, I was a big basketball player through college. I played noon ball, like literally like five days, four or five days a week at university with uh, a lot of the uh, Bobcat basketball players. And uh, since I didn't, I really love basketball and I, I, I sacrificed basketball for ski racing at a young age. And so in college, it gave me the freedom to be able to play basketball and, and, and ski too. So I, uh, I did a lot of cross training playing other sports, basketball being one of them. And, and obviously, uh, I played ultimate in the summer big time from a young, from college on. And um, of all the athletes that you've coached over the years, what percentage of them typically would end a ski season with their toenails intact? <laughs> not many not many no not many at all and how about I, for you how many winters do you end the season with your toenails intact uh, i couldn't tell you the last year i only you, have one foot <laughs> now so uh, <laughs> i lose it at least once a winter and you only have four toenails right because you also have a, a toe you had amputated correct correct yes so um Let's switch gears a little bit. You've had so much success as a skier, both before your accident and after your accident. Um, and you've also reached a very high level of ultimate Frisbee. Um, in 2001, you were the ultimate Frisbee national champion. And in 2004, you were the master's national champion. So these are team accolades for ultimate Frisbee. How does this work? Yes, these are, these are team, team accolades, our team. Um, so I played, uh, I played for 25 plus years and, uh, uh, ultimate Frisbee, uh, there's tournaments all over the world, uh, during the whole year. Uh, but the, uh, uh, the, uh, fall season is reserved for, uh, nationals. Every country has their nationals in the fall. And, uh, so, uh, we would, uh, every year Bozeman, we would put a team together to, try and make it to nationals. So we'd start at sectionals, which was the big sky section, which was uh, Montana, uh, Wyoming, and part of Idaho, and then Alberta. So we had teams like Missoula, Calgary, Salt Lake City, Jackson Hole, Sun Valley, uh, Bozeman, obviously. and then uh, we'd have a sectionals tournament, and then the top two teams out of sectionals would advance to regionals, which was the Northwest region we were in, and that was against basically the top teams in the world who came out of the Northwest section, the Bay Area, uh, Northern California, Seattle, Portland, Vancouver are is, is pretty much the hotbed of ultimate in the world now, and, and always has been really. And then uh, we would have to advance out of regionals to make it to nationals. And uh, it was uh, extremely hard as a small mountain town (laughs) to advance to nationals against the big city teams like that. So uh, later on in my career, we started combining teams from our section and putting together a team that could compete at uh, regionals. And we went to Northwest regionals and, 
uh, finally, after years of doing that, we uh, put together a really strong team called Trigger Hippie in 1999. And we... Our first year, we uh, advanced to nationals, and we took third. Uh, the second year we were together, we uh, took second at regionals and finished second. Um, and then our third year, we won regionals, and we went undefeated that season and won the national championship. And then we uh, advanced to world championships as number one ranked team in the world for uh, world championships for Hawaii in 2002, which we ended up taking the bronze medal we lost in the semifinals to our, one of our arch rivals. So you were, you were typically on the road every weekend during the fall when you were competing to go to these events? Yes. I'd probably do a tournament pretty much like I'd probably do one to two tournaments a month, probably for like 25 years. <laughs> and you're driving to these locations or flying? Uh, driving, flying. What, you know, it, it was a passion. Ultimate's a passion. It's like uh, once you get hooked into it, it's, uh, it's hard to leave. How did you initially get into Frisbee? Uh, they had intramural ultimate at MSU. I was walking by the fields one day and I, I saw him playing and uh, I had, uh, I, I, I went to a, uh, a church camp once when I was a kid and I, they taught you how to throw a Frisbee <laughs> and I was really good at it. So I was like, well, I should go out and try this out. So it was made for me because uh, I'm six, I was six, six then. And uh, I had a 33 inch vertical and I was super fast for a tall guy. So uh, the sport was made for me. <laughs> So you're a fourth generation Bozemanite. Uh, do you do you know many other folks in Bozeman who are also fourth generation? Uh, yeah, there's uh, quite a few of the kids that I grew up with that I graduated from high school with. Yeah, they, they had, uh, there's a number of families in town that ha have deep roots. Um, a lot of those kids, uh, though, don't live in Bozeman anymore. They've gone elsewhere. So I, I, there are some around now. For sure. Uh, a couple of my good buddies uh, that live up Bridger Canyon uh, uh, lost uh, a lot of uh, uh, livestock and land and fences and whatnot in the fire that just burned. And their, you know, they, their families go way back. Wow. The Papke family and uh, the Brailsfords and some of those folks that live up there. Would you have been surprised if, if someone said to you when you were eight or nine years old that you would be living in Bozeman uh, at, at this age, would that have surprised you? Or do you think, would that have been, you know, at you would have expected? Nine, at eight or nine, no way. I was, I, I, I never wanted to leave Bozeman. I, Bozeman uh, was the greatest place to grow up as a kid. Uh-huh. In the, in the late sixties and early seventies, Bozeman was 15,000 people. It was a, it was an agricultural town with the university mm -hmm. being an agricultural school. It was, it was a super great place to grow up. What were your summers like in Bozeman growing up? Um, how did you stay busy, um, for example, like in high school and, and before? Uh, I, I worked. I always had to work uh, to be able to afford the skiers. Um, I worked through high school at a ranch, uh, the Flying D Ranch, which is now the 
Spanish Creek Ranch. It's Ted Turner's ranch up hmm. up on the Spanish Peaks, Spanish Creek. What did you do there? Whatever they needed me to do. Fencing, bucking hay, uh, irrigation. I did a lot of pipe irrigation, a lot of flood mm-hmm. irrigation. Every once in a while, they'd let me drive a swather. Uh, What's a swather? It's a, uh, it's a tool for cutting hay. It's a big, like a combine, but for mm-hmm. hay instead of in the wheat. And growing up, were your siblings as engaged with skiing as you were? Um, yeah, my mom, actually, my mom was who got us into skiing. She, she, my mom loved to ski, passionate skier. Uh, both my sisters grew up ski racing with me. Um, both of them had knee or, knee injuries, uh, when they were, you know, reasonably young enough so that they were, uh, scared away from the sport. Uh, both my sisters ski still today. My, my oldest sister lives in Germany. And she, I think she still gets out and skis a little bit. Uh, and then my uh, other sister lives in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and she, she's an avid skier too. Not avid like me, but still skis. Hmm. How old were you when you and your sisters realized having each of your initials, first, middle, and last, the same was fairly unusual? <laughs> when we realized that my parents were extremely racist, <laughs> and what are your initials? KKK. Yeah. And did you ever question your parents about it? Um. Well, not really. Growing up, I mean, uh, both my parents had their initials were KK. So, you know, obviously they always said to us that it wasn't anything about that. It was about the fact that we wanted to, you know, to keep the K's in the family going, but. Uh, uh, as I got older and I realized, uh, that some of our, you know, our family members were, you know, fairly racist, you know, when we were at functions, Thanksgiving and whatnot, you know, then I realized that, you know, maybe there was more to it than <laughs> what they were saying. So in all your years of ski coaching, um, you had a very intense winter schedule when you were on the road quite a lot, you're away from your family. What did you end up doing for work in the off season in the summers? Uh, initially, I was a painter. I did a lot of painting um, in the summers when I wasn't coaching summer camps out at Mount Hood, which I did a lot of through the years. Uh, I kind of split time between the two. And then when uh, I got married in 95 and we started having kids, I started wanting to be closer to home and not have to spend so much time away. So I, I actually got into a uh, biological uh, predator of noxious weed business where we go out and we collect uh, predators of noxious weeds and we sell them to clients that are looking to control their weeds biologically as opposed to using pesticides and that sort of thing. And what is a predator? Um, well, predator is a insect that, uh, eats the, the noxious weed. So I, for example, uh, Canadian thistle, uh, has a uh, weevil called the Canadian thistle weevil. Uh, it has a scientific name as well, but, um, and, uh, if you have a high enough concentration of 
Canadian thistle weevils in a patch, it'll, uh, they, they'll do a pretty good job of eating the thistle away, killing it. So tell us a little more about what, what is a weevil? Like, what should we picture? Is it more like a, a beetle weevil or like a, a worm? A little teeny, uh, maybe a eighth to a six, uh, probably an eighth inch round little thing with uh, six legs, a teeny little head. And it actually has wings and they, they can fly, but they don't really do much flying. And they, um, uh, they curl up into balls, like little round balls when they're interfered with or stressed. And uh, that's how we catch them. We, we uh, knock them off the plants and they curl up into balls and they fall into nets. And how did this last summer go for collecting weevils? It was a good year. We had, uh, it was a good, last year we, uh, we hardly had uh, any bugs come out. It was one of the worst years in, in the 20 plus years I've been doing it. And then this year, for some reason, they, they, they were out in force. It was a good year. We had a good, a, a good amount. We filled all our, all our orders, which we didn't come close to last year. And are your clients just in Montana or are they all over the country? Uh, mostly Montana. Mostly Montana. But yes, there are some out of state. Hmm. So now that you've fully recovered, it seems, from your recent mountain biking accident, um, since you've just summited a 12,000-foot peak a few days ago, um, what's your day-to-day -day like these days in terms of activity and wellness? Um, uh, right now, I'm, I'm back painting. Uh, just working and then uh, uh, I try and, you know, I, I, I had been biking obviously before I got hurt. Mm -hmm. uh, since I got hurt, I haven't really ridden. Um, I hadn't really done much of anything before I went and uh, climbed that peak this weekend. <laughs> so uh, that, that made me realize that I need to get back in gear because I was suffering like a dog. <laughs> and how's your sleep these days? My sleep is horrible. I have horrible sleep. Can you share a little more? Is it hard to fall asleep or do you wake up in the middle uh, of the night? I, I don't fall asleep easily mm -hmm. and I wake up very early because, um, well, I have uh, more than one issue uh, mm -hmm. going on. Uh, uh, first and foremost is I, uh, I have phantom pain, my amputated stump. Um, phantom pain is... Uh, a phenomenon when you have amputation it's a feeling that your uh, leg is still attached um, phantom pain is a, a feeling that that attached leg is uh, is being burned or stabbed or pinched with needles uh, it's just uh, it's a hard feeling to explain but it feels to me like when I take my prosthetic off at night that uh, and I lay down, my, my leg just starts tingling and it's a kind of a burning tingling sensation and it, it doesn't really go away until I put my prosthetic on in the morning. Um, I have severe phantom pain uh, for uh, a couple of reasons. One, because I had so many surgeries and bone grafts on my leg, all the nerves uh, were affected before my amputation. And uh, secondly, I, I, I beat the crap out of my stump with my high level of activity that I do. So for those two things, uh, I, I have a, a very high level of phantom pain. 
Uh, the second reason too that I, I I don't sleep well is I have uh, I have significant uh, uh, depression issues. Um, uh, I had depression before my amputation, and uh, uh, my amputation made it worse. And uh, so I'm I'm constantly dealing with uh, with that as well. So the combination of the two has led me to uh, not be able to sleep very well at all. Maybe most nights if I get four to five hours of sleep, I feel pretty good about it. Sometimes less. Probably 50% of the time I get less than four hours, maybe. And before your amputation, you were getting more sleep than that? Yes. I was getting more. I, I, I was able to sleep. Yeah, I, I was able to, I had a hard time going to sleep, but I could sleep in. I mean, once I got to sleep, I slept well. Yeah. And what, what, what determines whether it's a bad night or a good night, whether you're able to get more than four, are there certain behaviors from the day before or is it just random and each day is different and you just know well, for the best? you know, it's that, it's that vicious cycle of, you know, if you're so worn out that you end up taking a nap during the day. And uh, for me, if I do that, if I take a nap, I'm so wiped out that I, I just pass out and, uh, you know, I'll sleep for literally, like I'll fall asleep for like two hours, just zonked, wake up and be a complete zombie. And then I won't be able to go to sleep that night. So, you know, that's, that's, that cycle happens. Uh, so obviously for me is, uh, you know, not napping is huge. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's hard sometimes when you're so wiped out from not sleeping. <laughs> As you know. Craig, are there any books or publications that you'd recommend that you've really enjoyed over the years? Uh... For, uh, I, for what? For sleep or just anything? Nope, for for anything. Um, well, I I enjoy the Alpinist. It's a quarterly publication. It's got phenomenal photography of the the high peaks in the world and the mountaineers that climb them. And I've always had a fascination with that. I love uh, the mountains and being up in the peaks. Uh, so that was a uh, that's a really good publication for me to take me away from things. Uh, I enjoy ski racing. Uh, there's a ski racing publication that keeps me abreast of what's going on in the ski racing world. Um, and any, any uh, books? Oh uh, yeah. That, uh, you know, I enjoy, I enjoy reading books about comebacks, you know, people coming back from situations like mine. Uh, a good example is the uh, story of the Hermann Meyer, the uh, Austrian national teamer that uh, was uh, 50, I think he won 54 World Cup races, and like third most all time for males. Uh, he had a horrible motorcycle accident right in the middle of his career and uh, essentially should have lost his leg to amputation, but he was too stubborn to have him cut it off. And he ended up coming back and working his way all back, all the way back to becoming uh, the uh, World Cup overall champion after that injury. And uh, uh, that all came 
to fruition right around the same time I was going through all of my stuff a little before. So it was an inspiring story to, for me as a skier to, you know, to see somebody like that was able to come back to the top level. I was, it was inspiring to me. What's the and title? Then I actually, I, I follow, um, I follow uh, adaptive athletes as well that are doing uh, similar things that I'm doing that I, I'm friends with or, you know, we're in uh, contact with on Facebook and whatnot. And they're skiers or they're doing other sports? Uh, yeah, skiers, other sports as well, cyclists. Uh, there's a, a guy here in Bozeman. Uh, his name is Vasu. Uh, so he try, he has uh, one leg um, from the – he's missing his leg from the hip down, and he is a North Face-sponsored athlete. And uh, he's a very good one-legged three-tracker. Does a lot of big mountain skiing. He's a phenomenal skateboarder. Uh, he uses his his arm crutches uh, to be able to skateboard. One goes on the front of the board. He does tricks. He's amazing. Wow. And now he's uh, he's really gotten into uh, like endurance type stuff, like trail running and whatnot. Awesome. And he's, he tours skiing as well with one leg. Amazing guy. And the Herman Meyer book that you mentioned earlier, can you share the title of that? I can't think of it right now. We'll, we'll add it to the show notes. Um, okay. And I think it's The Race of My Life. But we'll add, the we'll Race, add. Coming Back, yeah, The Race of My Life, well, yes. We'll add that as a link so folks can look into that if they want to. It sounds no. like a fantastic story. Um, Craig, are there any uh, resources for other athletes who've experienced an amputation? Anything that you can recommend to steer people towards? Um, you know, there's not. Uh, I found when I was going through my the whole process of losing my leg and whatnot that there's not a ton of uh, not a ton of places you can go as an amputee to get information. Um, there is, uh, I think there's the, uh, the amputee, uh, society association or a society of some capacity. And you can go there to get like general information, you know, like how, how to get process, where to go to get prosthetics and, you know, general information like that. But for actual, uh, Sites that, uh, you know, that support athlete or, or, or amputees doing things to integrate into society or to, you know, to, to show athletes doing, doing stuff and uh, kind of how to get there. There's not that much stuff. Um, I was lucky enough. I had a mentor going through it all that was a, a Paralympic uh, bronze medalist in uh, cycling. Um, and so, um, he, it was really good for me to have someone like that to kind of show me and make me realize that when I was first getting a prosthetic that, you know, it wasn't like this death sentence that I was going to feel like a robot the rest of my life. He was actually showing me that actually, you know, there's some pretty cool things with the prosthetics that you can do and actually made me realize that actually someday in the future, we'll, we'll have more advantages than, than, uh, people with two legs because <laughs> the prosthetics will be so much better, be faster. 
So if, if, if people want to learn more about you or if there are any amputees who are seeking guidance and, and uh, are inspired by your experiences and your transitions and want to get back into skiing or other activities, uh, can people reach out to you and, and how can yes. they find you? Yes, uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Craig Kempt. Um, it's my, you know, my, my page on Facebook. And uh, I, I'm also going to be starting a website that's going to be uh, kind of designed to show uh, amputee athletes so uh, as a way for people to see what kinds of things uh, amputees are able to do um, nowadays because I think it's important to show, you know, one of the biggest things going through the whole process was how many amputees I saw along the way that had kind of given up to, you know, not really motivated to do anything or to, you know, kind of push, push, push themselves along. And, and with prosthetics nowadays, you can do so much, you know, and I just want people to be able to know that that's what they have. If they, you know, want to do it, if you have a will, you can do it. And there's a lot of people out there doing that. And, uh, I want people to be able to see that. Well, that's happening. fantastic. I'm, I'm sure your, your site's going to be great. So for, for those listeners who want to connect with Craig in the meantime, um, he mentioned his Facebook site. So it's K R A I G K E M P T. And he also has an Instagram page with his name as well. And I'll put all this in the show notes so that you can reach out to him if you'd like. Um, Craig, thank you so much, uh, for taking the time to be on the show and for sharing all the transitions and, and successes that you've had. I really appreciate it. And, um, My pleasure. for those listeners who are out there, if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, please take two minutes to leave a review on Apple podcasts. And you can also do that on other platforms like Google podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. Take care, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. The video version can be watched on YouTube on the North Star Unplugged channel. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website, at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.